Good morning. Megan is not wrong. I do have some stories about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. I don't know if you noticed the way Megan spoke that differently than we often hear it. Uh, I will be using reign of God mostly as I, as I preach. And I will begin this way. The reign of God is like a blackberry seed. The seed that a bird eats and, I will say, spits out. Planting itself in the dirt of the alleyway, it grows and spreads and becomes the toughest and hardiest of the fruit vines. It feeds birds and squirrels. And mothers come with their children to pick the berries for pie and jam and purple-fingered eating. The reign of God, the reign of the power of love over death, of community and family over empire, of shalom justice over violence and dominance, the gospel kingdom. The reign of God is a toxic and insidious weed. I have heard southerners compare it to kudzu, If you're from the South, you'll know what that is. I had to have someone explain it to me. It is like a blackberry, an interloper. They are ubiquitous and ordinary. They're probably in your back alley or growing out of cracks in your retaining wall. The reign of the loving God sneaks in and gets in the way and grows and it is a nuisance, but it is sweet. Or spicy, if you're more into mustard. It is delicious. Jesus is playing with these images as he does. He's exaggerating for effect as he does. No sane farmer would plant mustard in a field of other grains. Mustard, get, it would get in the way. It's unruly. It's insidious. It's hard to unroot. It is like a blackberry. It's also hardy and sheltering and a place of shade and rest for birds and humans. And at least according to the internet, I saw a picture of a mustard tree bigger than a full-grown standing-up man. And again, the kingdom of God is like a line of code that a coder writes and sends by bot to millions of people. When clicked on, the virus will spread and shut down millions of computers. The reign of God sneaks in. It is a prank, a trick. It is unexpected. It stops you short. If it is uncomfortable for you to think of the reign of God as a computer virus, it should be. Especially if you've ever had a virus infect your computer. The yeast of the reign of God isn't just mixed into the flour, it's hidden there. It appears unexpectedly and maybe not wholly welcomed, maybe not welcomed at all, actually, The person trying to make unleavened bread is going to get a surprise. Yeast here, yeast in the time when Jesus was was speaking these stories was a corrupting influence. 
And the woman doesn't just hide it in a little bit of flour. She hides it in 50-plus loaves worth of flour. The reign of God will get into everything and everywhere, and it is not like former things, and it cannot be controlled. Then, again, the reign of God is also like someone who finds a priceless Picasso in the attic of some nondescript house and delighted. This person tucks that picture away and sells everything to buy that property and gaze at the precious painting. Like, that's crazy. I would sell that thing in a second. (laughs) And the person who does this is not honest. That painting or the treasure in Jesus' story belongs to the person who currently owns that house. The one who who put it there in the first place. There is an urgency and a subversion along with the joy and delight of finding this treasure. The kingdom of God is worth obsessing over, worth everything, by whatever means. And then again, the reign of God is like a musician and guitar collector who, after years of searching, finds a 1958-59 Gibson Explorer. I googled most valuable guitar. (laughs) He sells his whole guitar collection and everything he owns to buy this precious instrument. The reign of God is completely and wildly extravagant and totally worth everything we have. It is something to be sought obsessively, single-mindedly, and enjoyed wholly. Everything, though, everything for a pearl, for a guitar, beautiful, not practical. The reign of God is ordinary, as Megan has said, and subversive and impractical, and unwelcome, and delicious, and expansive, and unstoppable, and beautiful, and wholly indescribable, and unimaginable, and that is why Jesus tells parables. The kingdom of God is a noun of action. This is a phrase that I learned from Eugene Boring as I was reading about these parables. It's a noun of action in the same way that the love of God is acting and moving and dynamic. In the same way that our love in action is participating in the dynamic reign of God. Now and then and in the future and always. But the reign of God is also hard to understand and opaque and even troubling. It is troubling to come to a parable in which a dragnet, which is scraping the bottom of the lake and catching everything up in its path, and then the fisher folk are picking out the good and throwing back the bad. It is troubling to contemporary ears, to my ears, to hear Jesus say, 
The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. I was really tempted to say to Megan, can we just skip that part? Because I wanted to ignore it. I, Matthew has a few of these kinds of verses, and I don't like to look at them. Or I just want to look at the first part of that little story, which parallels the Taoist quotation, the net of heaven is wide and catches up everything. Some years ago, we even, I think, had that quote painted on our wall. But I read on, and Jesus continued to tell, and I'm trying to look at it with first-century eyes, the eyes of the writer and the storyteller and the first readers. This is a parable that believes deeply in the eternal sovereignty of God, that believes that real evil exists in the world, and God has the power to destroy it believes that there is a community, as we are, to whom God's word and will have been entrusted, and who, as followers of the way, are enacting among them the kingdom of God already at hand. This is a parable. All of these are parables that are stories of hope for people who are on the outside, for people who do not have power, People who do not have influence and have little agency in their world. They may, however, have access and understanding of small acts of subversion that could have big impacts. To taking advantages of surprising windfalls. To single-minded focus and drive. To joy. I just read this morning of two Catholic workers in Iowa who spent weeks and weeks subverting the, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline by setting equipment on fire, by teaching themselves how to dismantle equipment and the pipeline itself. And for weeks and weeks, they delayed that action. Small acts of subversion. There is hope in understanding this as a story for people who need hope. Understanding them as stories like this, and that the eternal God is for those who need hope. And understanding the parables in this way makes it a little easier for me to understand the response of the disciples, who when Jesus comes to the end of his litany, his grab bag of parables, and asks them, so did you get it? They answer, yes. No follow-up questions. No reinterpreting the parables in their own words. No, what I hear you saying, Jesus, is no. So when you say thrown in the fire, you mean, which, is all, which are all ways that I, as a contemporary reader, position of relative privilege and comfort would and did respond. They are able to just say yes. No surprise though, Jesus has a follow-up. Jesus has some further thoughts on how to take in these parables and how to live the parables. 
He says, you who are scribes of the reign of God, that is, you who are serving the good news, you need to be discerning. And now this part is definitely for us. Jesus says, you examine these stories that I've told, and you let them help you to discern what from our tradition of God's story of love do we hold on to? What do we plant like blackberries and yeast? What do we bury like code that will spread? And what do we strip away and sell off so that we can take up a new thing? The first disciples and the early church, and now we, are challenged to bring out from the storeroom of religious wisdom what is old and what is new. The valuable from our religious tradition. What do we examine through the lens of Jesus' teaching and example? Now, just as the early church did, we have reason to hold on to a gospel that is counter-cultural. To hold on to a message of peace in a militarized nation. We have further reason now than ever to lean into the discomfort of the kingdom of God. The discomfort of decentralizing whiteness and straightness and maleness in a country in a culture that understands all of those things as power itself. We can proclaim that the gospel is unexpected and uncomfortable, that it plants and roots itself firmly and will not let go. We have reason to encode the message of love and inclusion like a virus that will break apart codes that exclude and separate and hate. We have reason to so extravagantly to jump in with both feet, to give everything. I have had this fragment of a poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning embedded in my email signature for many years, and I will leave it as a blessing with you as I close. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God Only they who see take off their shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries.